It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I'm your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist L. Joy Williams. I'm happy that you made us a class this morning and I am happy in general. In fact, I'm elated, I'm ecstatic. <laughs> Nothing could bring my mood down over these last couple of days because this week, the New York State Legislature, New York State Senate, New York State Assembly passed the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act of New York State. And for those who have been listening to the show for some time, We've had shows on this last year where this legislation was introduced. This was in the wake of the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, Section 5 mainly. And I brought on the sponsor of the bill in the Senate, my partner in justice, Perry Grossman at ACLU. And we talked in detail about how states can step up in the absence of a federal voting rights bill. So I'm gonna go through all of this, but I just want to let you know that it has been passed by both houses on the state level, waiting for the governor's signature, which, you know, I'm hoping that she has a little, you know, her team has a little bit of political knowledge that it would be great to sign this bill like pre-Juneteenth <laughs> and kick off the Juneteenth celebrations by signing the Voting Rights Act of New York State. But I also want to thank our fellow Sirius XM Urban View family, Laree, who gave us a shout out earlier this week. Also, Clay, I was on his show talking about this bill as well. I think I talked about it on Karen's show uh, last year because it's just been some time since we've been advocating for it. But I'm, I'm really happy and proud that we were able to get this across the finish line. And I want to talk to you a bit about what is in the bill, which I think is really important to outline, right? Because this is one, you know, a lot of states, in New York in particular, has state laws that, you know, benefit voters that are more progressive than others, progressive not from a political ideological standpoint, but progressive in that, you know, pro-democracy, you know, trying to get as many people as possible to participate in the franchise. Some are better than others. We just recently, New York hasn't historically been that great of expanding the franchise. We just got early voting recently, you know, being able to shrink the time frame between when you can register to vote and when you can actually vote. We don't have same day voter registration yet. So there are a lot of different things that are coming up in the horizon. But what the New York State Voting Rights Act will do is one, is really create a central data hub for election information, which is extremely helpful because there are, yes, the state elections, you know, for governor and lieutenant governor and things like that, which is happening right now 
now, but there are also all of these smaller elections that happen in your state, from school board to library board, county exec, state legislature, city council, municipal elections, right? And so being able to have information and data that can be easily used to uh, identify trends, but then also to be able to help the board of elections, the various board of elections do their job is really important. It also gives greater protections against harassment and intimidation, right? Because it allows the state to use its power to really support the voter <laughs> and, you know, go after people that try to deny people their right to vote. It expands language access. So people who are not fluent in English can get resources on how they can participate in the election, in the language that's their preference. You know, and I found this very interesting because I, you know, because I'm a nerd, I went back and looked at the date, I think it was like in August when the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed. And I went to the New York Times headline to see what the stories were on the front page, like, did this even make the front page? So one, yes, it did make the front page. <laughs> August, I think 6th or 7th, 1965. And it's a picture, you know, the, the President Johnson signing the bill. But then there's also this small story adjacent to it about a lawsuit that was being filed, a voter-related lawsuit that was being filed out of Brooklyn because there were, there were these plaintiffs, they were saying that expanding voter access to the thousands of Puerto Ricans that were in New York City at the time and by not, no longer requiring that you be able to read and speak English as your first language or primary language would basically dilute everybody else's vote. <laughs> So it was really interesting to see that just I can never say this word, just a position, just to, just to pose, right? That at the same time that the Federal Voting Rights Act is being passed, there's also this legislation that is, you know, basically crying that they will dilute my vote. You know, they need to speak English, although the United States does not have an official language or any of that, and that they were citizens and should participate in the elections where in which they live. So having better language access is certainly, certainly important. The other things is that it empowers voters and actually empowers the courts to be able to basically support voters and give them different remedies for local communities, like I said, school boards, municipal elections, and things of that nature. It gives the courts specific, broader directions on what kind of remedies that the judge or the courts can give municipalities or counties or others on how to address issues that voters are suing for. And then the linchpin, because I don't believe a Voting Rights Act is a Voting Rights Act unless you have preclearance, is that it creates the very first state preclearance program in the state of New York and actually in the country, a state version of preclearance. And this goes back to what we talked about in the Voting Rights Act, the Shelby Holder case where the preclearance was gutted and that which makes certain aspects of the Voting Rights Act right now not enforceable. 
here in New York State, with the passage of this legislation, we have a state preclearance program that's run out of the state attorney general's office. And so now, if you have issues of moving polling sites or purging voter rolls, which has happened in the last five years, the last 10 years here in New York State, in Brooklyn and speci uh, specifically, that there will be a preclearance program where the city, the county, or the jurisdiction would have to submit to the attorney general's office approval before any of those instances happen. And just thinking about that, over the past couple of years, there have been a few states who have passed state voting rights acts, Virginia did, Washington, Oregon, and California. And given that we see the stall on the federal level of reauthorizing or creating stronger voter protections on the federal level, you know, passing state voting rights acts seems to be a way to try to strengthen and double down and protect voters' interests in this matter. Now, we have a whole bunch of other states that are reverting their voting practices and people are still determined to turn out and to show up. We see that in Georgia, right? But here is something that you can take for those of you who are listening. Maybe you're in, your, in the state legislature, maybe your staff, maybe you're part of an advocacy organization and thinking about for your next legislative cycle, for your policy agenda, what could you possibly put down as something that you should work towards. I would say putting a state voting rights act, looking wholesale at the voting laws in your particular state, looking at not just for state level, state legislature or governor or big cities mayor, look at town boards and school boards, particularly given the fight that's happening all across the country on school boards. Look wholesale at your voting rights laws and procedures and policies and think about how your state can address this on the state level. You know, do we want a federal voting rights act? Absolutely. But as we know from our civics lessons, who controls who votes in the state? The state does. <laughs> the state controls how you register, who's eligible, if you need ID, if you don't need ID, what your residency is, whether or not you have early vote or same day voter registration, right? So being able to look at your laws wholesale on a state level and coming up with your own version of a voting rights act that if you know there are jurisdictions who have a history of discrimination of moving poll sites and things like that what remedies could we put in place is it a preclearance program where if states and locality uh, if localities within the state have a history of doing that, then you create a preclearance program? Is it looking at eligibility and ID and expanding that? Is it expanding language access? And just giving you that information about how you can look at your voting laws wholesale, it reminded me that in this time when we're talking about the midterm election cycle and grading legislators, which we've talked about most recently, it's also we have to look to the future from a policy perspective and from our community perspective. This is actually the time this summer when I, you know, take in research 
and talk to people in the community, talk to other presidents of NAACP branches all across the state. And I talked to them about what their communities, their constituencies are experiencing, and then look at how we can develop a public policy agenda for NAACP now that we're gonna advocate for for the next legislative cycle. So let me give you an example and slow down. Sometimes you see, you know, whether it's a prime example would be like the Green New Deal, right? You see all of the ads about it. People have litmus tests on, do you support the Green New Deal or not? Do you support clean energy? And that is a policy, legislative policy on the congressional level. And they get people to sign on to it and determine, are you in support of this? Are you supportive of these ideals? And supposedly the ideals of the Green New Deal are supposed to support innovation, supposed to support climate change, also support entrepreneurship and economic advancement, right? But that is a policy agenda that was developed and then legislation that was created. And then you get other people to adopt it or to sign on. And people are using that as a litmus test of other candidates and sitting congressional members on whether or not you should support them for office on whether or not they support the Green New Deal or not. Well, you can do the same thing in your local community. And that's everything from somebody running for Congress, somebody running for US Senate, or for someone running for mayor of your small town or school board or state legislature. What are the issues that are most impacting your neighbors, your community, and developing a policy agenda, issues that are important? One of the resources I'd look at is the Urban League. The Urban League puts out a state of black America in New York. The New York Urban League puts out a state of black New York. And I look at those indicators and see where certain aspects of our community are, right? High rates of children in poverty, entrepreneurship levels while increasing, it's still lack of access to capital. Looking at housing, people are being, you know, moved out of their homes or out of their communities and the cost of housing is skyrocketing, skyrocketing, which has a disproportionate effect on people who are already at the poverty level or working poor or barely able to save. So looking at all of those from an economic standpoint, from a health standpoint, we're just coming out of the pandemic. We know that before the pandemic, we had a number of health indicators, whether it's maternal health, heart disease, hunger, things of that nature, maternal health. What are some issues that can be addressed legislatively through legislation? How can it be addressed from a budget standpoint, the city budget, the state budget, your county budget, or how can it be addressed directly in the community in terms of policy change, right? And then you develop that policy statement, you develop that agenda, and let's say in my town of a million people, the most thing that's impacting the black community is the affordability of housing. Well now, how can we address the affordability of housing on a legislative level? Is there something legislatively that can be done? And then ask elected officials and candidates, do you support 
putting forth legislation that addresses this. Same thing with the budget. And now you're going to the governor and to the mayor and asking, will you put financial resources into vouchers for security deposits for rent? Because we've determined in our community, people can pay rent. They just don't have the savings to do the security department, the security deposit as well. What legislatively can we do about that? What can we do in terms of providing financial support for that? You know, and then what can we do in terms of policy in terms of that? In the policy of different agencies in our local government or in our state government. So I use the late summer as an opportunity to do this survey, to read things from the National Urban League, the New York Urban League, look at our own requests that we get, calls into the office that, into the NAACP office that we get about issues that they need help with. We get a lot of mental health calls. We get a lot of calls about housing. We get a lot of calls about inequities in schools. Right. And so is this a legislative response, meaning that we should work with elected officials to draft legislation to address this legislatively? Is it a budget response, meaning that, OK, we need more money for these programs, more money for the staff in these agencies, more money for these programs in general? Or is it a response from the community? Meaning that we just need to make sure people are aware of how they can access resources or you know, connect to the institutions that already exist for this. And those are the three things I try to keep in mind when I'm developing or going through our policy agenda. What is the legislative response? Is there a budget response or a community response? So I invite you to think about that. You may be thinking of it in a different way. If you are, I'd like to know how you think about it. And you can certainly hit me up on social at Williams, or you can email me joy at sundaycivics.org. And I wanna hear your process of how you deal with issues in your community, how you develop an agenda, a policy agenda, or how your organization is going to work on an issue. So with that, I'm gonna take a quick break, uh, take drink some water, and when I come back, I'm going to bring to the front of the class, Alicia Garza, who's gonna talk about the black census. And I know what you're saying, Joy, you keep talking about this census, but this is a different kind of census, which actually is data that can contribute to the work that I just talked about doing. So stay tuned, we'll be back with more Sunday Civics here on Sirius XM Urban View, channel 126. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the t-shirt, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the t-shirt? I go let you know. Who is the t-shirt? Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm L. Joy Williams, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist. And joining us for a discussion on the underrepresentation of Black and Brown communities in the last census and to discuss the Black Census Project to ensure that communities within the global majority are accurately personified is Alicia Garza, founder and principal of Black 
Futures Lab. Alicia is an author, political strategist, and organizer, and I'm told a cheeseburger enthusiast. <laughs> she founded the Black Futures Lab to make Black communities powerful in politics. She's the co-creator of Black Lives Matter and the Black Lives Matter Global Network. She's a Partnerships Director with the National Domestic Workers Alliance, co-founder of Supermajority, which is a new home for women's activism. And welcome to the front of the class for the first time, Alicia Garza. Hey, I'll do it. So good. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you so much for joining us and for your team reaching out, you know, to be a part of my, you know, classroom here in talking about the census and a number of other things. And at the top of the show, we were talking about the census. And I can tell you that people who've been listening to me for a long time know that I have been basically a preacher out with my soapbox talking about the census since I started the show. I think it was like the third episode I did. And we're now into 187. And so really been talking about the importance of that. But before we get to all of that, since it's your first time in front of the class, I want you to share the story with us of your first civic action? Mm. Well, um, my first civic action ever, ever uh, was when I was 12. And there was a big debate happening in my school district um, about whether or not to provide um, condoms in school nurses' offices. There was a whole scare around teen pregnancy. And so um, really, there was a lot of conversation happening, not just in my district, but nationally, about what should be done about that. Um, at my school, the proposal was to put condoms in school nurses' offices so kids could have access to those and therefore prevent teen pregnancy. And so my first civic action was actually um, uh, talking to my school board um, about why I thought that it was a good idea for school nurses to carry contraception um, in their offices. Wow, that's like pointing back to a couple of episodes. We actually had a conversation about when teen pregnancy became a problem, a policy or a political problem to fix and all of the narrative around that, how presidents got involved and <laughs> all of that piece. And I remember, I don't think we're that far in age. I do remember when it was a big deal, but also New York and California, both of those. And like, so it wasn't like there were parents complaining, but it wasn't like, you know, parents outside protesting because right. we had, you know, you know, condoms. Like we were in schools when like kids, kids were getting pregnant and coming <laughs> like whatever. So they was like, please, please put condoms right. <laughs> like in the nurse's office, please. Thank you very that's, much. That's um, so I do remember that. And that's interesting. It's the first time somebody talked about that. Usually the conversation is around voting with their parents or, you know, things like that. So I love new stories to bring as an example of that civic engagement. So I want to move now to talking about the Black Census Project, because I think what you all are doing regarding, as you describe it, per given personifying sort of who Black people are in this country, and so that we're not just numbers and dollar signs attached to that, but that we actually have some more detail and color, if you will, of who the Black people are from all over and sort of what, how our diaspora sort of shows up in, in those numbers. So can you talk a bit about the Black Census Project, why it was created, and what the goals are? Yep. The Black Census Project really comes out of 
um, an idea that uh, I'll give you the, the very, very beginning of it. Um, the Black Census really comes out of a, an idea for a survey of Black people um, that was spearheaded by folks like Darnell Moore and uh, Brittany Cooper, right? They were wanting to do a survey um, quite a few years ago now about how people uh, perceived and received um, Black Lives Matter. And we never ended up doing that survey in the global network. And so uh, when I left to start the Black Futures Lab, I was thinking a lot about what it would take to build Black political power. And one of the things that I know to be true about why Black political power is fleeting, one reason, is that we're often spoken about as Black people, um, but we're rarely spoken to about what it is that we experience every day, what it is that we want to see for our futures, and what it is that we want to see from our government. And so um, with permission, we took that survey and we adapted it into something called the Black Census. And that was in 2018 when we launched the Black Futures Lab. <coughs> the Black Census is now what we believe to be um, the largest survey of Black people in America in 157 years. And we are asking Black folks from every demographic, every region, every political persuasion and worldview and ideology, what is it that you experience every single day? And what is it that you wanna see for your future? And then we take that project, that data, and we do a couple of things. One, we put it back into the hands of the communities that we gather it from. We believe very deeply that recent and relevant research belongs in the hands of people who can use it and use it for good purposes. And too often we're extracting from black communities and not reinvesting. And so um, one thing we do with this data is we, is we give it back to the folks that we collected it from. Um, the second thing that we do with this data is that we analyze it to better understand trends and top lines. And the third thing that we do with this data is we use it um, to create and design what we call a black agenda. And that black agenda is a set of policy and legislative priorities that are derived from this data that tells us a lot more about what it is that black communities wanna see from our government. And we use that Black agenda to motivate and activate and educate Black voters about how to be powerful in politics. One thing we know, Eljoy, from um, doing work in communities, Black communities across the nation, is that a lot of people are not enamored by politicians or elected officials. And we don't have as many as people like Stacey Abrams or Barack Obama around as you think. Those are you know, few and far betweens, but most often, uh, people are not enamored with candidates, they're enamored with agendas. Um, and so that is what we use to actually get people to the polls. And if you want to take the Black Census, you can do so all the way up to July 31st at blackcensus.org. Thank you. So I want to stay there a minute because I have an, a range of questions and <laughs> comments about that. One I think is particularly intriguing to talk about giving the data back so that organizations, community groups, and others have additional information to use in their ongoing organizing, whether it's on issues of hunger, whether it's on issues of justice reform, a number of different issues, because taking data from the census, right, you need a whole class in terms of how to use that data and saying something is available to the public versus things that are available and usable 
for the public. Talk a bit about the giving the data back piece, which I think in this age where we are, where our data and our content is like, you know, cash for other people. <laughs> so talk about how specifically the thought process to do that and how that works. Absolutely. Well, um, it looks a number of different ways. Basically, what we do is we make sure that this data is accessible to people who live in the communities that we derived it from. And so that looks a number of ways. One thing we did in 2018 when we completed the 2018 Black Census is that we did a roadshow back to many of the cities and states that we had collected data from and built partnerships with grassroots Black-led organizations in those states to help us collect that data. And what we did was we did a range of town halls where we worked with local community-based organizations in Florida, uh, in Louisiana, in Alabama, in California, and many other places. And we had them identify who are the stakeholders that you want to come together to better understand what we learned from um, the data we collected. Uh, in places like Miami, right, we brought folks together who were elected officials. We brought uh, members of the press and the media. We brought community members together. Uh, we brought folks who were a part of organizations and folks who were not. And we literally um, analyzed together, right, what we found in that data. Um, the issues, the number three issues that were most important to folks in those communities, how that related uh, to uh, the importance of other issues from folks not in places like Miami, right? What were the relationships and connections there? Um, but then we also actually give the data files over. <laughs> um, and so people are able to do a number of um, activities related to cross-referencing, right? You can better understand uh, you know, in a certain geography, right? How many black households um, are part of labor unions? Um, you can better understand things like, uh, you know, what did uh, black Spanish speakers, right? In a particular area say their most important issues were. Um, and so why that's important for us, right? And then we also give people access uh, to a data specialist that we work with very closely so that any questions we can't answer, you can. Why this is important to us, Eljoy, is because you're absolutely right. There are so many ways in which um, data is not, it's not, it's not enough for data to be accessible if people don't know how to use it. So we do try to provide those tools, but we also try to make it super simple. Um, the other thing I want to say here is that we've um, made this data available also to academics and folks who are um, writing about particular experiences, right? And needing to have recent and relevant data to help um, support their claims. So um, we translated this survey in 2018 into nine languages that Black people speak. And um, we did work with some graduate students, right, who were doing some research around um, um, Afro-Latino identities. And they were able to use some of this data um, in the service of their work. Uh, the other place where we use this data, of course, Eljoy, is in our Black to the Future Public Policy Institute. Um, and that is a place where we bring together uh, Black grassroots leaders from across the nation to learn how to write, win, and implement new rules in cities and states across the country. Uh, the institute is organized into what we call pillars. Um, which are basically kind of like issue areas. And those issue areas are informed and driven by uh, the top kind of um, most resonant issues in the Black census. 
Um, and then we also make that data available to our fellows, right, to use in their policy campaigns. We um, help them use some of that data uh, in crafting their bills and um, helping to get their bills introduced and in helping to uh, make arguments for why their bills should move through committees and ultimately um, end up uh, at the desk of their governor. So um, we've been successful in that thus far in that we got one policy passed in California uh, um, in partnership with the uh, Young Women's Freedom Center uh, in California. They passed a statewide bill uh, through our institute that um, changes sentencing guidelines for people who um, are convicted of nonviolent offenses uh, as a result of them being in coercive, abusive, intimate, um, intimate or domestic partner relationships. So um, these are things that we're doing that are changing people's lives in real time. And it really starts with um, talking directly with our communities about what we experience and what we want to see from our government every day. Yeah. So two, I, I think that's a great segue into my next question in terms of using this for a policy agenda. Because quite frankly, I, I know when I read some of the information of being able to give this information to those who represent us, right? So they have a better picture of who their constituents are, the issues that they care about. But then also turning it around in those of us in our particular communities, I'm just thinking of this post or you know, I would say post lockdown period of COVID, right? We know that there are a number of things that our communities need. We can see it, whether or not you're at a, a soup kitchen or working with an organization that works with tenants on rent issues, works with in the health field in terms of connecting people to either health insurance or doctors and things of that nature. We see in our communities the need. Right. And we know what is broken. We also have ideas on how what would fill the gap, like what would make a difference to address some of those issues. Right. If we're talking about homelessness, we know we need to we need to build more homes. We need to make it easier for people to get in them and to have them and then the resources in order to afford them. Right. Talk about how this data helps inform the ability to do those things, right? Because there is a lot of recovery that is needed in our communities because we know a lot of those systems were broken or shored up with sticks and rocks, you know, even before COVID. How do we come out stronger and how can this data and information help us to do that? Excellent question. Well, first and foremost, the first thing we have to do, Eljoy, is we have to ask people. And too often, we are creating and designing policy that is not in relationship to or in consultation with communities that are being directly um, and severely impacted by a particular phenomenon. I'm so glad that you used the example of COVID-19 relief and recovery, because Black communities, as you know, are being hit and being impacted in, in um, extreme ways. Um, and a lot of that has to do with, right, not genetics or uh, a, a lack of health, as some people tried to uh, uh, indicate early on in this pandemic, but it had a lot to do with um, what was already crumbling and deteriorating infrastructure to support health and wellness in our communities. And so then, of course, when you get a tsunami called, you know, coronavirus um, into our communities and it hits uh, uh, infrastructure that is already weak, it is um, natural, right, that there would be 
um, some severe collapse. And so um, here's how this works in terms of um, how our data right, helps to inform what people can and need to be doing. Um, number one, we ask people. Um, we ask people what they're experiencing and we ask them what they want to see. And in doing so, Eljoy, what we often are doing is we are interrupting and disrupting um, narratives about what Black communities want that actually aren't being um, uh, talked about widely in Black communities. So here's what I mean by that. Most traditional polls, right, um, only talk to a, a small percentage of Black folks. And in that small percentage, they may talk with Black folks um, who uh, represent a particular demographic within our communities. But we're not a monolith, Eljoy. And so you know that there are Black folks, some Black folks that are better off than others, some Black folks who are uh, more connected, more engaged, right, more participatory than others. And so really what you're getting is a snapshot of what a particular demographic inside of our community is saying. Um, but we don't have any idea really, right, if we're matching the demographics of people who are being polled with the demographics of people who are being hit the worst and the and the hardest. And so we make sure um, that we're providing that level of data. For example, um, we have been doing these recurring temperature check polls at the Black Futures Lab, really getting um, a sense from Black voters and Black folks who you know, vote occasionally, if at all, about what their top priorities are and were from the Biden-Harris administration, specifically as it related to the priorities that the Biden-Harris administration laid out for themselves. Uh, and that included, you know, tackling things like uh, COVID-19 relief and recovery, um, addressing, right, white nationalism uh, 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 in our government and in our communities, uh, uh, economic relief and recovery in general. Um, and then it also related to um, issues, uh, uh, you know, related to how it is that we're able to participate, right? So, so voting rights. Um, and what we found, right, was that there were all these policies that were being pushed forward through stimulus bills and et cetera, but that actually Black folks were saying that we needed something very particular. Uh, we put out, right, that um, what was polling uh, uh, most heavily um, in the temperature polls that we were doing, temperature check polls that we were doing with Black communities, was that folks felt like a one-time stimulus was not enough, that there actually needed to be a monthly stimulus payment. Um, until the pandemic was over that could help to cover increases in costs for food, for, for housing, right, for healthcare, um, and that those were actually the right solutions to help get not just Black communities back on track, but America back on track. Um, those solutions continue to pull very highly today, right? And so we've been pushing uh, both at the federal and the state level, right, to be considering um, programs that give ongoing relief and not temporary relief uh, to communities that are being impacted, uh, you know, first and worst. Uh, the other thing that we've been able to do um, is we've been able to kind of design agendas that are issue specific that look at some of these recommendations we put out a COVID-19 relief and recovery plan for Black America, uh, uh, I believe uh, in uh, 2020, right? Um, as a result of some of the, the things that we were hearing from polling in our communities. Uh, we put out a uh, what we call the Black mandate for the Biden-Harris administration, right? That was also a result of the data that we were collecting both from temperature check polls, but also from the Black census. These are all examples, right, of how we turn 
this kind of data into real-time action, that we can surface um, solutions in our communities that actually can be turned into pieces of legislation, they can be turned into policy, and they can be advocated for at the municipal level, at the state level, or at the federal level. Yeah. And then lastly, before I get to actions, in you know, in your book, you talk about this as well, about the power that individuals have not only in electoral politics, but in their in communities. How can this, you know, help people grade their current representatives in this time, right? So there are a number of organizations and others who do like report cards on the people who represent them. And I always say, you know, you need to be in constant communication with those who represent you. But, you know, it's election time. I would also send them a report card, you know, and contact them and saying, this is how constituent services, whether it's representing me in Congress or the state, this is what I did like, this is what I didn't like, this is what I need you to work on if I'm going to vote for you again, right? Yeah. <laughs> like all of that piece. Yeah. How can we use some of what you guys are doing that informs that process in terms of identifying, again, not, you know, uh, not sort of picking someone who is going to 100% align, you know, with what, because there's no one that 100% aligns with your political agenda or, or with your personal values. But how can this information be used to help inform people, help inform communities on participating in electoral politics for those of us who do, and we want to increase as many people that will, but how can we use that to better inform who we choose to represent us? Mm. Oh, I love this question. Well, number one, we can get um, educated on where they stand on the issues that impact us and the issues that are important to us. Um, and our sister organization, the Black to the Future Action Fund, uh, we do endorsements of Black candidates who have a progressive uh, vision for how to uh, address some of the challenges that exist in Black communities. But we only do endorsements, right, based on um, how those candidates stack up against our agenda. And our agenda, again, is influenced and impacted by um, the data that we collect in our communities about what is important to us and what we want to see from government. Um, I would encourage people who are listening right now to do the same. You know, really figure out what it is that you care about, what it is that your community cares about. Um, and then, you know, I think the thing that we do, Eljoy, is we assess um, who we give our votes to based on where they stand on the issues that are important to us. And you're absolutely right. No candidate is going to check every box. And if they do, um, it, they most won't follow through on everything. But there's another thing to pay attention to here, um, <clears throat> which is, you know, what is their approach to engaging our communities in the decisions that are impacting our lives every day? That's a, a level of criteria that we use at the Action Fund as to whether or not we endorse candidates. Yes, it's very much about our issues and where you stand on those issues, but it's also about how you engage and involve our communities in the democratic process. Are you co-creating and shaping and getting input and feedback from our communities about what it is that we want to see as our representative? Or um, are you representing other interests and do you leave us behind? Um, these are the kinds of things that we can be advocating for, even if we're not 
um, you know, involved in politics every single day, right, as like a part of our everyday lives, um, we can also be very choiceful about how we give our votes and who we give our votes to. Um, and in staying engaged, right, we can also make sure that we're not the only ones that are um, informed about why we are supporting somebody or not. I think that level of regular engagement also lets the person who is supposed to be representing you know whether they're representing you or not. Um, and that often also helps to shape how it is that people take action. And I think too often, Eljoy, one of the things that we forget about is that it's not just about getting that person in office, as you said. It's about that consistent and regular engagement and feedback that lets them know when they're doing right by us and when they're doing wrong by us. And that way, um, when election time comes, if they don't get your vote, they know it's not because you're sitting out. They know it's because you're dissatisfied. So those are some um, tricks and tools of the trade that I would encourage people to use as well. Alicia, thank you so much for sharing that. Lastly, what can people do? You mentioned at the top of our conversation that people can still complete the survey. So give us some homework here. Okay. What should we be doing? Well, first thing you should do is go to blackcensus.org and take the census. It literally takes 10 minutes. Um, when you do that, you will have an option to um, give us your contact information. If you so choose, we do not require it. Um, to be able to take the census. So don't think we're trying to scoop all your information. It's your choice. But if you do choose to give us your information, then we will be um, engaging you and involving you in other efforts that we're doing to educate, activate, and mobilize Black voters in states across the country. Um, if you don't want to take the census, but you want to sign up to do stuff with us anyways, just go to blackfutureslab.org. Um, the other thing you can do as a part of the Black Census is you can sign up to hold house parties and focus groups. We are trying to reach 200,000 Black people um, with this survey in order to become the largest survey of Black people in American history. Um, and so you can help us do that by also signing up to hold house meetings or focus groups, helping us get to as many of our folks from as many corners of our communities as possible. Um, this survey is going to uh, folks who speak languages other than English. This survey is going inside of prisons and jails. Um, this survey is going into rural and urban communities, and it is available and open to everyone and anyone who self-identifies as Black. Um, we are not policing ideology here. We really want to hear what you think. So um, please join us. Uh, go to blackcensus.org or blackfutureslab.org and sign up to make history with us. Well, Alicia, thank you so very much for taking the time to talk with us. Hopefully you'll be back for further conversations and I will be, wait, I did talk it before. So do I take it again? Take it again. It's new. Okay. We've got new questions this time around. All right. We're asking about COVID-19. We're asking about white nationalism, all of which were not things in 2018. So. Yeah. Come on over and check us out. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more on Sunday Civics. How can it be that you love the most unlovable part of me? Of me. How could you see? Your life was the only gift I ever need to be free. Thanks 
Alicia Garza, and thanks to all of you for joining me this Sunday for more Sunday Civics. We're going to be back next week for the beginning. I think I talked about this before, but it is the beginning of a series of conversations that I'm having regarding immigration. I'm actually really, really looking forward to having these conversations with elected leaders, with advocates, with attorneys about immigration. And I know what you're saying. You're like, we ain't even talking about immigration right now. However, <laughs> these are still issues that are happening. We still do not have comprehensive immigration reform on a federal level, which is where it needs to happen. And in the meantime, there are all of these misconceptions about immigrants. There are these talking points and phrases that are used to gin up certain fears and certain political responses. And, you know, as your civics teacher, I want to make sure that you are properly informed as you make decisions. Those of you who are in the advocacy space, in elected leadership, or just us who live in communities, I want you to be properly engaged and informed about different process. So before the next issue, immigration issue rises to the news cycle again, you have a better understanding and you can also advocate on behalf of yourself and your communities in a different way. So that series starts next week and will go on for another two episodes. I'm really looking forward to that. If you have questions and no shade, <laughs> there will be no shouting out, no matter how much you think the question is dumb or anything, send it to me at Eljoy Williams. You can DM me. My DMs are open. You can also email me directly, joy at sundaycivics.org. And I will incorporate your questions into the presentation, into the interviews so that people can be properly informed about what's happening. With that, thank you so very much for always tuning in, always coming to class, but more importantly, for always doing the homework. I see y'all out in these streets because y'all send me photos and y'all send me information about your elections or your advocacy work, and I absolutely love it. Keep doing that, and if you have any highlights that you want to send about work that you've done or that you are doing right now, I want to shout you out. So make sure to hit me up on social media at Eljoy Williams or send it to me via email, joy at sundaycivics.org and we'll shout you out here on the show. It's our version of show and tell. <laughs> so have a great Sunday and we'll see you back for Sunday Civics next week. It's who we are.